Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I'm here with Dr. John Paul Wright. He is the professor of criminal justice at the University of Cincinnati and the author of Criminals in the Making, Criminality Across the Life Course. You can follow him on Twitter at CJProfMan. We'll put links to all of that below. Uh, Dr. Wright, thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. Great to be here. The question that has most interest me in your research, and it's really fascinating stuff. We'll put a link to your research as a whole below. This question around political ideology and its relationship to criminality. Now, putting the caveats in, of course, that correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation. I wonder if you could help people understand this uh, very strong, I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but in the social Mm -hmm. sciences, strong correlations are hard to find. This seems like a dose-dependent, fairly strong correlation between liberal versus conservative ideology and a propensity toward criminal behavior. Yeah, you know, it it actually very much surprised me as well. And um, I've been moving my career to study how ideology influences um, uh, people's lives and the choices that they make and so forth. So when I went to apply this to the study of crime, I was actually quite shocked that there wasn't anything there. Um, and, And the more I thought about it, well, you know, most of the academy is very far to the left. There's a real reluctance to study, uh, things on the left like this, there's a whole, there's a sort of almost a gluttony of studies uh, on conservatives. They, you know, most people in the social sciences see conservatives as something to study, an aberration, something abnormal. So uh, it struck me that that the the lack of empirical investigation, this is quite startling. So, uh, you know, I, I located a national data set and did some tentative analyses and I thought, well, that can't be right. The, the results were much stronger than, than I had anticipated. So I went through uh, very carefully and, and, um, and, and verified the, the, the correlation between political ideology and, and uh, criminal behavior, both uh, uh, cross-sectionally and longitudinally, uh, and was actually quite surprised by the magnitude of the difference. Um, we're talking about between from very liberal to very conservative, almost a, a one standard deviation difference uh, in in the, the participation in crimes that we we measured in our index, which were primarily uh, property crimes, uh, uh, drug crimes, things like that. So there was a substantial difference, and that difference didn't didn't uh, go away when we controlled for some other variables. Now, what does a standard deviation mean for sort of the lay layperson? What kind of uh, numerical multiplier can we expect in terms of criminality from somebody more on the liberal side? Uh, you know, if, if uh, that's hard to quantify given given the you know the numbers that we're talking about without you know, without me showing you the full distribution. Uh, but let's just say that uh, you know if you're familiar with the bell curve. And where that center is in the bell curve and going full right, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about a, a general difference that is almost that's rarely seen in the social sciences uh, as a as a measure of um, as a measure of difference that that's not seen in most studies with with factors that we know are related to criminal behavior, like self-control and certain temperamental features, uh, the associations are much smaller. So it's a fairly substantial difference. 
Now, there are certain characteristics associated with conservatism versus uh, liberalism, or maybe we just sort of stay with left versus right, because, of course, people across the pond find these terms a little bit confusing. But uh, uh, on the right, of course, uh, a a willingness to abide by social norms and and, uh, an aversion to hyper-experimentation with new experiences, whereas on the left, there is, of course, more of a sort of restlessness, a willingness to uh, experiment sexually, willingness to pursue new experiences, sometimes even at the expense of uh, safety. Uh, those Are those associated with criminality, or are they sort of red herrings when it comes to understanding those tendencies? No, they, 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 they are uh, substantively associated with criminality, and um, in, in framing the paper, it was I wasn't exactly sure which way to go in it in, in predicting whether it be left or right, um, and it was entirely uh, ex- uh, not experimental, but uh, sort of I, I didn't know I wanted to find out. So when I wrote the front part of the paper, I said, "Look, there are reasons that we would expect an association between those on the left and crime, or reasons that we might find it on the right and crime." The the big reasons are, are associated with personality. And a lot of what the political ideology uh, studies are showing is that people on the left have certain personality characteristics and ways of seeing the world that are conducive to criminal behavior. You mentioned uh, one uh, openness to experience. Right. So they're much more likely to engage in uh, risk taking behaviors and engage in risk seeking behaviors to experiment with drugs, to have a, a, a uh, substantially more, uh, a greater number of sexual partners to push the boundaries, if you will. And, and that general sort of tolerance of, of, uh, antisocial behavior in some ways, um, gets played out in, in daily life and daily existence. Uh, the other area that, that's, you know, these studies are fairly new was in self-control and self-control as a ubiquitous predictor of life outcomes. I, it matters across the board. It matters for just about everything. And uh, according to the, some contemporary studies, people on the left uh, score lower than people on the right on measures of self-control. So that was another uh, reason that we thought, you know, that this, this may be the case where we see people on the left engaging in these types of uh, crimes more often than people on the right. Exactly correct. Uh, people on the right score higher on measures of conscientiousness, uh, less impulsive, much more uh, concerned about order, uh, public safety, uh, authority, uh, those types of factors, which are probably protective factors when it comes to criminal conduct. The question of free will I found fascinating as well, and this is sort of dipping back to my long ago yeah. Psych 101 course around the sense of locus of control. One of the things that seems quite common in the left is to ascribe life choices to environmental factors. You know, if you're born poor, you you know, stack, odds are stacked against you, whereas on the right, and I think this has something to do with religiosity, belief in the soul, and the capacity to choose outside or independent of environmental variables, there is more of a focus of um, personal choice, personal responsibility, and I found it quite fascinating that the more you believe in free will, I, I'm probably bastardizing it completely, but the more you believe in free will, the less likely you are to engage in criminal behavior. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting. And, and it does sort of, that tendency does sort of separate the right and left. Uh, you, you mentioned locus of control. Do I feel like I'm in control of events in my life or events controlling me? And that's, uh, you know, we, we do see those differences in, in data. Uh, uh, as well between left and right. And, you know, I think there's something to be said about 
you know, the conservative uh, belief in sort of personal accountability and how my behavior affects other people. Now, certainly liberals, you know, liberals share that, but those it's oftentimes counterbalanced by other types of factors like that, that will the willingness to push those boundaries or violate social norms or or uh, just to eject social norms because they don't like them, <laughs> you know, uh, but 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 yeah, free will or the perception of free will or the perception of agency. Right. That I'm an uh, I'm an actor and I'm responsible. And you mentioned religion. Right. Well, what does you know, for for conservatives, you know, religion is that is that element of responsibility, you know, metaphysical responsibility to myself, my community or or my God. And that's another one of those protective factors against uh, crime and drug use and other types of uh, activities that bring long term harm to people. And this question of self-control of restraint. I'm, I'm sort of reminded of the, the sort of famous marshmallow test, you know, where the kids were offered one marshmallow now versus two in half an hour or something like that. And that very strongly predicted life success. Yeah. It's also sort of struck me that, you know, everyone's first job usually sucks and it's bad and annoying. And you got to get like a paper route and stuff like that, getting up six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday to go deliver papers and stuff. But um, if, of course, you believe that you are the sort of master of your own destiny, and if you're focused on free will and responsibility, and if you're willing to subjugate yourself, to the social norms of, of work and pleasing customers, or at least your boss, it seems to me that you'd kind of get on a track of life success uh, in the market. Uh, whereas, of course, if you think that you're a victim of circumstances and you haven't got a hope, wouldn't that also predicate you more towards the sort of criminal track? Uh, uh, short answer, yes. You know, the, the, the great thing about uh, going through life, especially start, you know, starting to work and engaging in those things, is that you're you're you learn that life is not fair. You learn that you learn that you know everyone has it hard, right? Everyone has a set of conditions that they have to deal with, and that you learn to maneuver and navigate through those. You have setbacks, you advance, you you know that's just the nature of things. And the, the earlier, the sooner you learn that, probably the better. What the what the victim stance ideology does is it says, well, none of that really matters because these people have it better than you. And you have it worse than they do. And, and there's sort of an escapism that that allows, uh, indeed encourages, uh, and, a, and a resentment and uh, a, 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 an orientation, then, if you will, a psychological orientation that says, you know, I'm just not in control of it and I will do what I need to to get ahead. Uh, I've done a lot of field work on the street and in inner cities and so, so forth. And I, I can tell you through the various anecdotes and conversations and interviews that, I, that I've had with active offenders that that is a, a very substantive mindset. You know, that is, that is uh, in, in a lot of ways, how they see the world. Yeah, and of course, if you feel that circumstances have conspired to keep you from whatever positive goals you have in life, there is a lot of resentment, there's a sense of entitlement, the world owes me back because it robbed me, uh, and you've sort of set in combat against the larger social norms within your own society, and I think if you really don't respect the social norms within your society, criminality becomes much easier to justify. I think even criminals need to find some way to justify uh, their, their own actions, uh, and I think that's one path, and it's a pretty sinister path to go down, I think, to to end up with that mindset. Yeah, you know, and it, it, it's actually, you know, it's really interesting, too, because, 
in, in the criminological literature, we, we have these things called uh, criminal thinking errors, right? They're pretty much in the corrections uh, arena now. And, you know, these are uh, victim stance thinking, denial of responsibility, you know, blaming the government, power control orientations, what have you. But, but they're part of the cognitive scripts that people have uh, to understand and to explain the world and to explain their role in the world. And what we find is, you know, people that have a lot of these scripts, a little bit, you know, that they, they blame others for their predicament. They're, they're always in the wrong place at the wrong time, that, that pretty much nothing is their fault. <laughs> that, these folks, that these scripts allow them, right, provide the psychological uh, escape hatches, if you will, for them to engage in all sorts of nefarious activities. It's not just crime. It, it, it's, it's promiscuousness. It's drug use. It's driving too, you know, too fast. It's acting uh, dangerously. Assault. You know, you name it. Uh, the those scripts, those uh, ways of seeing the world, are fundamental to understanding criminal conduct. Yeah, absolutely. Now. Delving into the realm of genetics, which is always a, a challenge, but I think really is one of the great unspoken um, fundamentals of, of criminology and sociology that people are just kind of loath to, to sort of look at directly. But as far as I understand it, we can't sort of look at the human mind as a blank slate and it's like, oh, well, you just, if you happen to be adopted into a liberal family, you're going to get this kind of thinking. And if you happen to be adopted into a conservative family, you're going to get this kind of thinking. The way that it works is uh, twin studies seem to indicate that I think you've, you've written about 60% of political ideology spread. Uh, it can be at least associated with genetics. And I sort of want to make sure that, that we look at the genetic underpinnings so that we can look at perhaps something that is even more causal than political ideology, which is the genetics that may lead someone one way or another down a political path. Well, that's, uh, you know, I, I started working in an area of biosocial criminology uh, a number of years ago and have published a, a number of studies along with my colleagues. Uh, I think uh, you had Dr. Kevin Beaver on here a couple of times. Uh, you know, I've worked extensively together on several of these projects. That, that, you know, really show, yeah, there's a genetic component to aggression. There's a genetic component to, to human violence and so forth. And, and that uh, you can't escape this. OK, this is just human evolution. This is the type of individual differences that we would expect uh, for, for, for biology to play a role. It's not to say that environment doesn't matter and all of that stuff, but that biology is meaningful. Genetics are meaningful. When we look at family studies or twin studies or extended twin studies or uh, you, you name the methodology, we always find a genetic influence. Okay. And we're really grappling with how to understand how that plays out, not only the mechanisms of influence, but how this plays out in the social world. And incidentally, it was the reaction of my discipline uh, to our work uh, which was largely negative, uh, that really got me thinking about how ideology plays a role in, in other parts of our lives, but especially in, in academia and in scholarship. Uh, you, th there is a strong uh, propensity, if you will, to see everything in terms of environment, to see everything in terms of of, of racism or oppression or what have you amongst those on the left. And of course, most faculty are 
to the left, right, especially in the social sciences. Uh, so they carry all of that forward and have for many decades now excluded the biological study of human behavior. Well, they say that was because, you know, we had good intentions and, you know, Nazism and all this other stuff. But I've always found those arguments selective uh, and not very convincing. I personally think that they did it for personal political reasons, that these were sacred values to them. Environment became a sacred value. Um, and, and hence, it, it took on sort of a life of its own. But they were able to do this for what, 40, 50, 60 years. And we have to ask ourselves what type of scholarly biases uh, were present that allowed that to happen when they were clearly wrong. They were clearly wrong on this. Uh, Let's talk just just to break that out a little bit more, Dr. Wright. In what ways? I mean, I, I get that the left has this sort of economic determinism, your class structure. Not not saying that it's all Marxism, but there's certainly those elements in it that the class you, you're born into determines your sort of psychosocial behavior and all that kind of stuff. So um, in what way would you say definitively that it was wrong to focus so much uh, on um, uh, on the environment? Well, the, the, the very earliest... Uh, studies and crime showed a familial effect, right? That crime was concentrated in, in some families and not in others. That finding has been replicated many, many, many times over across continents. Um, you know, about 10% of all families produce around 90% of all serious product delinquents, for example. Well, there's a strong hint that there's some possibility of some genetic uh, influence there. When we look at families and we, we start to look at it generationally, we see very strong intergenerational continuity. And we find this, again, everywhere that we look. The intergenerational continuities would seemingly suggest that there might be something genetic going along, right? After you get out to, you know, four, five, six, seven generations, it's very difficult to argue that socialization is that perfect, Okay, uh, so the twin studies, uh, the twin studies have advanced uh, both in size and scope and complexity. They converge along these points, depending on when you're measuring aggression or violence, what age uh, type of sample and so forth. But they're converging. They are entirely replicated. Uh, and it's not a matter of method. It's not a matter of how it's measured. These are reliable findings produced by scientists across the world. So, right, there, there's this weight of evidence now that, that you know, this, these things were wrong. But let me, go, let, me, let me just say something a little, you know, step back away from all of that. One of the strongest predictors that we have of engaging in violence, right, uh, is being male. And when I was a graduate student, right, I was taught, well, it's socialization, it's masculinity, it's, you know, uh, you name it, right? We give males, you know, the Tonka trucks and the Bobo dolls, we teach them how to become violent. If you were to simply step back and say, you know, boy, you know, males are the most violent in every culture, across every time period, across, you know, they've been the, 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 the victims and offenders, they died in wars, I mean, all of this other stuff. Maybe there, that, that degree of continuity and uniformity ought to suggest that there's something biological about being male that predisposes men to those types of actions, right? That's not what you would get in the social sciences. It's not what I received in the social sciences. And they, again, were clearly wrong about this. 
Um, but bad ideas take a long time to die. Oh, what is it, the old saying that, that science advances one funeral at a time, <laughs> just as the old guard uh, die off? That too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk a little bit about, and again, I'm going to grossly generalize, so feel free to comb in into more detail, but this distinction of two types of criminals. Number one, of course, is sort of the impulse control problem criminal. They get a criminal opportunity, this sort of smash and grab, or someone just says, hey, we're going to go knock over a gas station. Like, woohoo, sounds fun. Uh, there is those aspects. And then I think you associate with the sort of dark triad of personality traits, those with more sinister uh, and sadistic and cruel um, criminals that even the sort of impulse criminals are afraid of and say, whoa, that guy's nuts. Don't, don't go on. He, he doesn't carry a gun because he wants to, loves beating people to death with his bare hands. Could you help people sort of understand the distinctions between these two different types of um, criminality and the role that these sort of dark triad personality traits uh, play in, in forming these distinctions? Yeah, sure. There, um, uh, you know, in, in criminology and in real life, right. Um, uh, we find this self-control matters. And like I mentioned, it is a substantive, ubiquitous predictor of a lot of things in life. And that has given rise to this image that criminal offenders are sort of these, you know, hapless opportunists that go about, you know, if you leave your keys in the car and they see it, they'll take your car, mm. right? Or if they're walking, you know, they're walking down the street, man, you've got a nice, uh, you know, uh, set of headphones on. Well, that's an opportunity. They'll take the opportunity. Now, there's some truth in this. OK, uh, criminal offenders do tend to be much more impulsive, do tend to have lower, much lower levels of self-regulation and so forth. But uh, there are also criminal offenders who are simply malevolent, that they are mean, they are cruel, they are vicious. They care little about other people. Um, they see them as pawns to be used, to be played with, and then disposed of uh, uh, when, when the time's right. And, and that group uh, has pretty much not been, a, you know, really not, uh, not a lot of appreciation of that group in criminology. Um, but they are unique. These are the folks that enjoy violence. These are the folks that are turned on by violence physically right, uh, turned on by it, that, that they're attracted to it, that they generate and work to keep street their street reputation um, uh, that's, that's centered around violent conduct. You know, uh, it is an instrument, right? Violence is an instrument to them that they use uh, for retaliation or to, you know, depose somebody that's in competition or simply because they want to. But what, what separates them, and, and this is where the, the dark triad is coming from, um, you know, the dark triad's composed of, you know, three broad personality factors, the uh, psychopathy, uh, Machiavellianism, and that the, the cognitive use of people, uh, and narcissism, right? High levels of narcissism, you know, I'm, I'm really important, you know, uh, and, and combined when these things sort of gel in, we, you the dark, dark triad. Well, we thought there's a strong possibility that we can separate out, right, people that have those high, high uh, dark uh, DT traits, right, from the entire population. And if, in our study, that's exactly what we found. Incidentally, another group did the exact same thing on another sample and found exactly what we did. So we're starting to see some, some initial convergence on this. But, you know, it, it, it goes without saying that some 
criminal offenders are cruel, callous, unemotional, uh, vindictive, spiteful. They, they really are set apart uh, by their cruelty. Going backward in the time, however, this same theoretical position has been used to, to look at kids with conduct disorder. And children with conduct disorder, a, ser- a number of uh, very talented academics have said, you know, yeah, we see conduct disorder, but within this, there's a group of kids that are really uh, just almost dangerous, right? And these kids have what they call callous and unemotional traits. Callous in their 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 treatment of other people. They can be very physically violent, very manipulative. Um, and emotionally, there's just no, there's no emotional boundary or barrier there. They don't care. Okay. Um, so whether we're talking about callous and the non emotional traits in childhood or dark traits uh, in adulthood, we're probably talking about the same thing. Right. Now, one of the things that I sort of noticed in the last election cycle was the constant accusation that Donald Trump supporters were being violent. And a lot of this stuff turned out to be, you know, faked or or at least exaggerated to a large degree. Where we did see quite a bit of violence was on the part of the left. And I found this, the, the research that, that you and others have done, Dr. Wright, and really fascinating in, in helping people to understand that, that the left has this um, impulsivity of aggression that they generally will project onto the right, but doesn't mm-hmm. seem to manifest nearly as common uh, on the right. Do, do you think your work fits into uh, this level of protest and aggression uh, in the political spectrum in America? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of working on some of those uh, projects right now. Uh, but you you do see this. And the more you delve into it, you know, the left has a history of violence. The left has used violence instrumentally, uh, political violence, especially um, uh, for their own purposes. And I think that often escapes uh, scholarly attention, again, in large part, right, because you know, most people in scholar, who are scholars are on the left, right? They, they tend to glorify or to excuse or to even hold up uh, some of the perpetrators of violence that are on the left. I'm not sure you see that on the right. Maybe I haven't looked at it, but I, I don't see people on the right holding up, you know, Mao or Che Guevara or, you know, the weathermen as, as, as uh, things that as people that, that we want to emulate. Uh, people, some folks on the left side, you do see that. So there is this acceptance uh, amongst those on the far left to use violence for instrumental means. Remember in the, in the 60s and so forth in the United States, you know, there was, what, a bombing a week at one point in time, right? Um, the, the war protests and all of the other, uh, the weatherman activities and so forth, execution of police officers, some of the things that we've seen recently uh, with the execution, open execution of police officers on the street, these are not uh, committed by uh you know, right-wing terrorists, people influenced by left-wing ideology and left-wing uh, uh, causes. 
Well, and it, I remember being deeply shocked the first time I read about the uh, sort of trajectory of a lot of the domestic terrorists in the 1960s and how many of them ended up in academia of all places. I just found that I couldn't imagine uh, that occurring um, uh, on the right, but it se certainly seems to be quite common uh, on the left that they're sort of welcome with open arms for their commitment to the struggle and the demonization of the right by the left. I mean, they view them, uh, the left views the right, you know, as the sort of famous basket of deplorables uh, case goes as sort of these irredeemably not just amoral but malevolent people and of course when you demonize your opponent what you're doing is you're you're justifying or you're increasing justifications for violence if you're facing an enemy that immoral that despicable then um you know the ends justify the means and i think that that escalation of um the, you know, they also talk about the other, you know, the escalation of the negativity or the hostility towards the other, I think does go a long way towards justifying it. And again, I don't know whether they use the language and then it justifies and then the violence uh, escalates or they just like to use violence and this is the best way they can convince themselves it's the right thing to do. It's probably a mix of all of the above. Uh, you, you know, I, I'm not sure we're capable of disentangling all of that with, with, with data or anything. Uh, but what I think is is important and clear is that uh, you know, sort of contrary to the, the this this image that you get in college that you know of the pacifist uh, left that that you know they that they embrace diversity and tolerance and all these things. Well, that, that at one level maybe, but they also embrace some other things that lead to violence and that justify and indeed. Uh, glamorize violence. And you're exactly right. I just read, you know, where, where, you know, a number of the protesters or people that actually engaged in, 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 in acts of violence and crime, you know, went on to become tenured professors. I would venture to say that that was on, would be almost unheard of. Uh, for people on the right, if, if that were the case. Um, the left has no interest in, in diversity, in my opinion, because if you just look at leftist departments, uh, you know, about a third of, of uh, people in America uh, self-identify as being on the right. You sure as hell don't find a third of those people in leftist departments. They have no interest in diversity. You know, they, they don't mind what, what whatever skin or color or whatever gender. Right. As long as you're a full-on leftist, you're welcome. <laughs> so this idea of diversity, that's a bit of a sidebar, but just that interest in diversity seems to be uh, non-existent when it comes to uh, ideological diversity. Uh, absolutely. All of the data show this, right? If you I mean, you, you, you look at the, the studies uh, uh, that, that look at, you know, left-right differences in, 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 in the social sciences and humanities. I mean, you're talking, you know, 40 to 1 in sociology and a cultural anthropology and, you know, 20 to 30 to 1 in psychology. In my field, I just conducted a, a similar type of study. It's 30 to 1, you know. Uh, and, 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 of course, this presents a lot of problems if 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 you're coming from pro, if you're coming from a set of, of, of issues or policies from the left's point of view, right, then you you don't see you know what the other side has to offer. In fact, you don't even care what the other side has to offer because it's off limits. Uh, I think there's very clear evidence now that the lack of intellectual diversity uh, in the social sciences has hampered our science, has let us let us down paths that that have actually not just been intellectually wrong, but have caused harm. Well, and I, I think, think yeah, I think that's certainly true. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, we need to take responsibility. We need to reconcile that. We need to understand 
the sacred values in our field, reduce those, and really seek out intellectual activity. Look, if someone's on the right and, and the argument that they make is correct, it shouldn't matter if they're on the right, right? Unfortunately, I think it's a truism that in academia, if it comes from the right, it's got to be wrong. <laughs> well, and I would also argue that we fund, as a society, we would fund this kind of research in order to find solutions to our most pressing problems of poverty and abuse and criminality and so on. Now, governments, of course, love the environmental explanation because then they can design ludicrous government programs in an attempt to ameliorate these problems. So I think governments as a whole love funding academics who say it's all environment because the government can come in and tinker with the environment and hopefully solve the problem. But the intransigence and intractability of some of these problems is certainly pushing back strongly against the uh, environmental argument. And um, if we're wasting resources trying to uh, get the tail to wag the dog, um, that is hugely despicable and problematic in society because there are lots of pe millions of people who could genuinely be being helped. But because we're only focusing on environment and it's not actually solving the problem, well, the government loves it, the leftist academics love it, but the people who you could actually help are being tossed out of the window. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely believe that. I've, I've written much of the same. Um, you know, and in terms of crime, my, you know, where I, my specialty, you know, you see this in a lot of areas now, incarceration, uh, uh, policing, uh, what have you. And I, I think some of this is really, uh, it has caused harm. It has caused harm to real people who have to live in these areas that are now crying out for assistance. And, you know, let's face it, most criminologists, a have never met a criminal. He have never been into the neighborhoods where criminals reside. You know, in fact, they live in nice places. You know, we're well, we're we're reasonably well paid. We we have a lot of control over where we go and so forth. Um, so, so what I advocate for for me is not necessarily what I would advocate for for someone else. And I think that aloof detachment that many criminologists have to the lives of people uh, that they study live. Right. And the people around them, they have to deal with that. I, it, 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 it sets apart. Um, it sets them apart and said, well, you know, I live in a great place. Right. And, and everything's cool and nice. And we've got a lot of informal controls and so forth. And, and, you know, I don't want the cops here. So why would I impose that on somebody else? Well, go to those neighborhoods. Right. Get some experience with this. Interview criminal offenders out on the street. See, see, you know, if that matches up with with your theoretical ideas that you talk about in class. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, be an empiricist, which is where all science should find its final justifications. Um, well, thanks very much for your your chat today. Um, I'm fascinated with this topic, and I really do want to help get some of these ideas out of the ivory tower and more more into the mainstream. And I really appreciate the the articulation of these ideas is very very well done. Just wanted to remind people that you can follow Dr. Wright at Twitter.com/slash CJ Profman, which is like an excellent rap name. I wanted to add, and we will put links to some of the studies we talked about below. They're not hugely long, they're very accessible, and they're well worth your time to read and to understand. You know, we do have significant dysfunctions within society uh, that were getting better for a while and now arguably are getting worse, and we really do need to focus on whatever it takes, whatever um, politically correct barriers we have to smash through to actually help people. That should be our focus. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Dr. Wright. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. My pleasure. Great thoughts.